Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. This is the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In this special series, we present sessions from a recent symposium to mark the 50th anniversary of the Australian newspaper. These sessions were recorded with assistance from Sky APAC and Macquarie University. Thanks for the support. Um, well, I'd, I'd just like to welcome you to the art session um, on the Australian and its coverage. Um, 1964, well, we couldn't have chosen a better year as far as the arts were concerned to launch itself. Um, the paper would be around to record and campaign during the great censorship brawls of the late 60s and early 70s cover the beginnings of the Australia Council, the resurgence of local film, theatre, music and book publishing, and it would be there when the Opera House opened. And um, also it would record the sort of growing vitality of the visual arts. Um, and as a result, I, I think you could say it became a great sponsor of innovative arts writing in Australia. So we're going to look at all that, throw up some memories and anecdotes, I'm sure, and some analysis. Um, personally, I... I've had a sort of long and if sort of um, spasmodic association with the paper. Um, these days I, w I write for Fairfax, but I was there at the start and um, went back in later years as a contributor. Um, I've also had a, a, a different kind of connection. My husband, James Hall, had various jobs on the paper. He was one of that procession of editors that Mark referred to. And um, these days I have a son working on the paper, Lex Hall. Um, so I'd now like to introduce our panellists. It's a, it's a great group. Um, Dr Liz Jeffrey um, holds a PhD in Media, Music and Cultural Studies, plus an MA Research in Contemporary Music. They're both from Macquarie. She's also an independent arts journalist and commentator, an associate member of the Centre for Media History and Publication Officer for the Australian New Zealand branch of the International Association for the Study of Popular Music. Sylvia Lawson writes history, critical journalism and fiction. She's worked on newspapers, in academia and in the film industry. Her books include The Archibald Paradox, a study of the early Sydney Bulletin and its first editor, J.F. Archibald. Um, and she's a present film critic for the online and print journal Inside Story. Uh, Catherine Brisbane, AM, was co-founder in 1971 with her husband, Dr. Philip Parsons, of Currency Press, the Performing Arts Publishers, and founder in 2001 of Currency House, a non-profit association established to assert the value of the performing arts in public life. She was a theatre critic for 21 years, notably a national critic for The Australian, during a, a time of um, great turbulence, radical change, and, and she's written widely on the history of Australian theatre. Um, she's received many publishing awards, including the A.A. Phillips Award, and the National Book Council Award and holds two honorary doctorates from the Universities of New South Wales and WA. Most recently, she's the recipient of the J.C. Williamson Award for Lifetime Achievement. Ashley Wilson um, has been arts editor of The Australian since 2011. He's been at The Australian for 14 years, working in The Australian's Brisbane Bureau for several years before moving north to become the paper's Darwin correspondent. He spent just under four years in the Northern Territory Another turbulent period that spanned the Peter Falconio murder trial, the fall of Labor's first Northern Territory chief minister, and the Howard government's intervention in remote Aboriginal communities. During that time, he also won a Walkley for, for reports on unethical behaviour in the Aboriginal art industry, a series that led to a Senate inquiry into the Aboriginal art industry. On his return to Sydney, he was appointed deputy arts editor and then arts editor. In 2013, he signed a contract with Text to write a biography of um, Brett Whiteley. So um, here we have them. Um, so first up, I'd like to um, ask Liz to, to deliver her paper, and uh, we go on from there. We'll kick off. First of all, thanks very much um, for being here. Thank you to the Centre for Media, uh, Media History for putting this together um, and having some faith in a bit of an academic overview before we get into the nuts and bolts of the trenches and... You know, um, I feel a bit of a fraud, but hopefully that I can add something to this uh, to this great event. Um, so today, Australian audiences can watch, listen, and engage with the the arts from almost anywhere. Only a century ago, things were very different. Audiences wanting to access art beyond what they could perform themselves often had to travel a significant distance, and those of professional quality or with contact with international trends 
could be prohibitively expensive. This restriction had a big impact on how Australians considered their relationship to each other and to the rest of the world. Non-Indigenous Australians, those of us not used to being part of a small population spread across large distances, have often felt a sense of isolation from art scenes, developments and forms. Henry Lawson talked about such isolation in 1895, where he described feelings of being part of the lonely bush. And I think it's important that art had this sense of isolation held within it. It was a term that would resonate with leaders for decades and with the media as it, as it formed. The media was seen as something of the cure for this. While there are many examples of these battles with the tyranny of distance, as Geoffrey Blanley famously put it, one that comes to mind for me is a speech given by uh, Earl Page in the early days of radio. As part of his opening speech for the wireless and electrical exhibition in Sydney in 1923, a speech that was probably made not far from here actually, he launched the then new medium in terms of its potential to unite the country and share its artistic interests in particular, where he said, the word lonely will be eliminated from Australian life with the wireless able to promote the music, song and story of our city and spread it to the most remote of country homes. Flash forward 40 odd years to 1964 and broadcasting was bringing arts to many Australians. We could hear music, poetry and performance via radio's theatre of the mind, while a new form, radio with pictures, was developing its empire in its first decade of transmission. The idea of spreading arts across the country, sharing music, a song, a story, as well as theatre, books, film, television and other arts as they developed, is one that was surely in the minds of the founders of the Australian 50 years ago. As the publication described in its early prospectus or catalogue, I'm not sure what you call it, it was a publication they put out just before it came out, um, they previewed what they called the lively arts and its coverage, and if you'll forgive me I'll just read you a little bit of that. The uh, editors proclaimed, the lively arts and lively artists are news, and news will be the Australian. From its dress circle seat in the national capital, the Australian will furnish its readers with a comprehensive view of trends and events in music, ballet, opera, drama, painting, sculpture, films and television. Critics and reporters in Canberra and all state capitals will survey the Australian artistic scene. Overseas developments will be reviewed by staff writers of the Australian and newspapers with which it is associated in London and New York. The Australian will introduce its readers to the people whose job it is to entertain and inform the world. The singer arriving for a tour of this country, the actress who has captivated New York, the TV personality at the top of the ratings. If a fiddler plays a wrong note in Boston or Bristol, the Australian will know about it. If he does it twice, the Australian will tell its readers. So to move forward, excuse me, to the specifics of starting a national arts conversation in the Australian, and I think that was the really important thing, a national arts conversation that was happening daily. Um, uh, so putting together a national daily piece, a daily place for written arts coverage and criticism was surely an interesting proposition. The ABC was developing its, country its coverage excuse me, across the country on radio and television, and national commercial network chains were developing during this time too. But the building of a centralised print outlet across the country was the claiming of an interesting piece of real estate. I imagine that at once this was an advantage and a disadvantage for, the, for national arts scenes and coverage. Would a national scene be developed that would allow arts to diversify across cities or um, to tour the country and build audience support? Or would centralised arts coverage lead to a homogenisation of an existing scene? as the quirks of regional identity and context were ironed out or overlooked in the place of the more professional, cutting edge or impressive work of major publications with major money in major cities. Perhaps both of these things happened and are continuing to happen and perhaps that's fine, I'm not sure. If it's okay, I'd like to drill down a little to look at what an, a couple of um, national print arts places did provide, a space for national arts critics. The role of an arts critic is one that academics and other commentators have often argued, and it's also one that artists and audience, audiences have often debated in terms of its value. Oscar Wilde famously explored the role of the critic as artist from his position as, as both a critic and an artist. 
And the role of art's commentary, criticism and dialogue has been explored by various theorists, least of all Roland Barthes' famous idea of the death of the author and the birth of the reader, encouraging a dialogue and engagement with the arts. Not just placing the author as the, as the sole place of meaning, but drawing an audience out. In terms of the specifics of the Australian when it started, I decided to go back to the first month of the paper, looking at the arts as they appeared in their first pages. Reading it back now, I found some interesting things. Firstly, if arts journalists, like all journalists, are those who write the first rough drafts of history, it was fascinating to look at the types of scenes that were getting their first drafts here at the time. And I think yesterday there was talk about whether or not editors were looking to the horizon or just to the next step. And it must have just been to the next step, but to find what they found and to cover what they found, I still find is really remarkable. Firstly, as was in the preview of, of, that I put out for this, I'd expected in 1964 that there might be something to say about the presence or absence of one of the biggest arts movements of the day, the Beatles and their tour to Australia around the time of the Oz's launch. Indeed, there were traces of the fabs in those early pages. However, no talk about their music. They were put within a gossip context. Now, that's interesting. I mean, you know, very, the Beatles have become bigger than their music in lots of ways. Really interesting that at the time, that's how they would be represented. Um, it was uh, in Peter Brennan's page. I think it was labelled The Lighter Side, the page three that ran on for a while. There was also, within that first month, a reference later on to the Beatles possibly being listed on the stock exchange. I mean, look at where they've become now. <laughs> Beatles Empire, again. Yeah. To pull that yeah. out in 1964. How fascinating. Mm. Now, this still leaves a hole in a question. Was the music not a key part of the story at the time, but rather was it just the band's fame? Maybe there just wasn't time to get a hold of the records. Maybe there was a feeling that they were already being covered somewhere else. I'm not sure. That's what we get to ask. Um, pulling on the music thread, and you might have picked up the music thread is my thread, um, reading through what the Oz was covering in terms of music, I found some really interesting things, but also some stuff that is of particular um, importance to a modern reader, to a modern music person. Interestingly, there was a dedicated folk music presence by Edgar Waters, who named himself, from the, I think it was the first weekend edition, as the folk music um, reporter. Now, as far as I know, there wasn't a lot of folk music reporting, dedicated folk music reporting going on at the time, even though now when we go back and have a look, folk, of course, was something that was bubbling away. But it would be easy to think from our you know, memories of the 60s or our assumptions of the 60s that it was all boys and rock and roll. Very interesting. Um, now, this was at a time when broadcast media was besotted with pop, rock and classical, and pop and rock were particularly tied to television as it was developing and growing. So this was perhaps a form that could have easily fallen on the wayside, and it's thanks to Edgar's work now that I can go back as a researcher and have names to look up. If you don't know who you're looking for, you can't find them, even as wonderful as our access is now. Without his first draft of history, I don't have somewhere to go back and look. So thanks, Edgar, wherever you are. Um, the coverage of, broken, of folk in these early issues has lots to tell a contemporary reader, researcher and music fan. First, the new folk and roots revival has a strong precedent here. And it's also, got, uh, it's also in these early pages where he started to raise the question of a local sound, identity and a place in the international context. So Edgar ran a piece um, titled Australians Couldn't Match Dylan, where he talked about a particular Australian artist who he said is not angry enough. Is this an Australian characteristic? I'm not sure. I think Australians can be angry anyway. Thanks, Edgar. The National Paper also raised some interesting questions. What was the role of the ABC in covering this new genre of music? And what were the consequences for ignoring it at the time? It allowed room for discussion, not just with the broader logistics of this, but also invited audiences to engage. So one of the very early letters, letters to the editor, sparked by Edgar and his work, um, ask the question, why do artists stay here? What is there for us here? Do we need to go overseas in order to make our art? A question that is still pertinent 50 years on. Folk in this instance also too seem to be positioned somewhere beyond the national popular music industry as a commercial space. It was looking for an arts as a national identity, as something that could transcend regionality, which makes sense with the vision of a national paper. This type, of this type of coverage was just a tiny pocket of the arts, of the Oz arts. There were many other types, as the rest of the panel will demonstrate. 
But even this little piece, this little fragment that's been left, provides what otherwise could be lost and what could provide a lot more context for contemporary artists. It's not just Mumford and Stuns and Boy and Bear and the other Paul Kelly that's been doing this stuff. This has been going around for a long time. Um, what was the reason for this focus on folk? Was it Edgar's personal interest? Was it an editorial decision? An opportunity to fill a gap in the market? Certainly it was a field that broadcast wasn't taking seriously or systematically. Having a little look around, I noticed the Canberra Times that had a bit of folk coverage, so perhaps what Mark was mentioning about the, the competition with Canberra was maybe why they pulled it out, I'm not sure. Arts journalism and commentary covering stage, screen, music and other performance types is not just about gatekeeping, although I think sometimes it's easy to think that it is. It's about providing access points and energy transfer opportunities. It's about providing something for the lonely bush to play on the Beatles theme. Perhaps it's about giving, giving Eleanor Rigby some friends, I'm not sure. But today, in an increasingly crowded review environment where online recommendations, blogs and likes are everywhere, I find it even more interesting to look at the idea of dedicated print arts coverage in a centralised space. Edgar's work still giving me something to look for. If I didn't know the names of those artists, I couldn't find them on Google. Google won't just tell me. So, thanks for letting me kick off. Well, I think we'll just roll on and then we can have questions on everybody's papers at the end. Um, so, Sylvia? Thank you, Sandra. Um, I haven't got a paper. <laughs> and um, the reasons I haven't, and the reason for the title you've got there, sitting there, Breakthrough in 64, is that when Bridget kindly first invited my particip participation, I didn't know I'd have to be in Canberra struggling for the life of the National Film and Sound Archive which is where I've been. I've done very modest amounts in that direction, but even so, that's actually relevant to what I'm going to talk about in this um, briefly discussing reviewing films. I'm very grateful to the Australian, as it once was, in the late 60s and early 70s. I had been reviewing films from a, a position of enthusiasm but profound ignorance, <laughs> in the earlier 60s for Nation and um, a flag should be waved in tribute to a late and great editor, Tom Fitzgerald who like all the rest of us gravitated to the Australian and to Rupert at one time um, but um, I had great freedom there if, and for limited audience going to the Australian in I think 69 expanded the audience and having a sense of an expanded audience gives the writer an absolutely essential confidence. You've got to feel that you're talking to people, more people if possible, and, and um, that's pretty terrific. And that's, um, that was pretty important in the what's actually, I find, a lifelong business of learning to write about cinema. Cinema was not a word we used in those days. We talked about film, we talked about the movies. But the notion of cinema as an extraordinary compendious range of forms um, going back, well, to 1895, that's right, um, involving soundtracks, music tracks, um, eventually voice tracks, narrative tracks, and very importantly in documentary and film essay argument tracks that we, well I and most others in the English speaking world didn't know a whole lot about. But um, through the work of Nation which preceded my time in the Australian, I did um, form the erroneous and romantic view, still clung to slightly, that cinema, cinema was really French by definition. <laughs> of course, I was totally wrong. And what I want to say is that um, I shared the reviewing in The Australian intermittently with the filmmaker Mike Thornhill, and he was part of a group for whom um, the classical years of Hollywood were everything, and my addiction, addiction to um, the continental European was totally wrong-headed. Anyhow, all these debates were extremely healthy and they found partial voices through the arts pages of The Australian. And another tribute to the late James Hall. He was a terrific section editor, he really was. He'd, he'd let you do just about anything. In my case, that included not only film reviewing but starting a column on magazines. 
because I got fascinated on the side with um, the way magazines, Meandre and Southerly, Quadrant, all those, and others around, were arguing with each other, failing to engage, crossing voices. So as film critic, I also wrote a magazine column for a while. That was fun. And uh, the one other thing I'll always remember that he very cheerfully let me do was write a reply. And this would have been in 71, I think. It was. It was during the period of the McMahon government. He allowed me to write a reply at some length to a very nasty review of Germaine Greer's female eunuch. <laughs> I, of course, I wrote a pro-feminist reply. Um, which was needed, I think, at the time. But anyhow, that's a quick and personal, very long-distance example of the uh, free-ranging view Jim Hall had of what the arts pages and their regular contributors could do. But when it came to film, I just had to learn a lot from the debates I've mentioned between the pro-classical Hollywood people or even less classical Hollywood, and the, um, those who were, like me, addicted to <coughs> European cinema. And, but to do so um, in full expectation that we had an audience who would, who would respond, who were happy to, for us to go left and right in all directions out of field and invite us to look at films if we could find them, which was another matter too, um, to complain, in fact, about film circulation, to pick up on the then shaky enterprises of the film festivals and to cop, as I did, um, hostility from Melbourne because Melbourne knew and still does know that it is, of course, the cinematic capital of <laughs> Australia. No, sorry, the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> and, um, um, and the um, nature of those debates and arguments with Melbourne are, are sort of another story. But the point is that the Australian was national. Uh, what you said in the Australian would reach Melbourne and, and, and reach all the others. And that, um, <clears throat> that really mattered. When you're involved yourself, as much as a student, as a student, as any kind of teacher or critic in seeking to expand the range of people's expectations of cinema. And as I was expanding my own expectations, so I hope I expanded those of others. Um, what I've said so far will show you that I can't quite um, accept any watertight division between the Australian in the media landscape and the Australian in the arts landscape. The arts are not, never have been, never will be watertight. They are not to be disengaged from politics. And another story I do know quite a lot about, to which Sandra referred to, the story of the Sydney Opera House. If you want an example of how you cannot keep art shielded from politics, there's one. Um, um, then from 1957 until now. Um, <clears throat> but I want to confess some deficiencies in that film reviewing of a long time back. I'll first say I think I wrote better for the reasons already given, the sense of confidence and freedom. Um, and But um, I also was um, perhaps um, forgivably, perhaps not, um, immune to the, the pull and challenge of documentary. We always had documentary films being made here, for better and for worse. And the standard attitude among young film Turks of whatever stripe was that you regarded what used to be the Commonwealth Film Unit as dreary, dust-covered, bound by bureaucracy and all the rest of it. This was profoundly unfair. And <laughs> it's taken me the decades from then till now, really, and work, some work on history to, uh, to understand how, um, how, how wrong it was. We were also extraordinarily... Um, deaf and blind to the claims of Asian cinema, even though quite a lot of Indian cinema and, um, <clears throat> and indeed some Chinese of both sides of the border um, did come in with film festivals. Um, I, I think there's still a level of unconsciousness of the wealth of Asian, Asian cinema. Um, there were, in other words, heaps and heaps of things we, um, we didn't know. Um, but um, 
I have to be I have to be brief for reasons given, but skipping from um, um, from then from then till now, um, I think that um, it's always true that a reviewer or critic of film is writing in a context in a total political social context of course but also in their own um, media context um, thank you Peter Brown I cannot ever say enough for independent critical journalism without which we would um, <laughs> be dead in different ways um, but um, when you're writing for newspapers with some reach um, and Sandra knows far more about this now than I do um, but you are in that context people haven't still haven't much choice of proprietors if their, if their role and their mode is the newspaper online or, and or in print and therefore I can't agree with those who today say how can they write for the Australian because as we all know the Australian has changed enormously its politics has changed and we've heard from Mark something about the um, transitions that that proprietor who is just um, well he's the Napoleon of our times isn't he <laughs> um, extraordinarily powerful um, if the job you've got is writing within the Murdoch press then that is the job you've got and it's terrific really how people still writing cultural critical work in that context do their jobs and manage to communicate critical issues um, and um, it seems to me they still do so um, and I don't know for his own reasons Rupert doesn't seem to mind arts criticism is there, arts criticism has its place and there they are but um, I'll um, sorry I'll just say one more thing about that um, you can't, I don't think anyone can or should be holier than thou in relation to journalists who find their places in that media as much as in the more liberal or left liberal media. They're all shrinking, they're all changing. Newspapers, we're told, will be gone in five years. Will they? I don't know. I don't, think, I don't actually think so. But um, I have to throw something to, to Mark with gratitude for his terrific lecture. And it's got nothing to do with film or something sometimes. In, in Alice Springs, which is a place I go to quite often, and with the Centralian advocate, advocate, they look at it and they say, do you think he knows he owns it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll, 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 I'll leave from there. I'm, I'm very happy to talk further on the reviewing film business, which has gone through many permutations in my chequered career. But um, anyway, it's a great job to be doing. I love it. I want to ask you about there, but um, we'll, we'll go on. Um, so Catherine's up next. Uh, well, I joined the uh, Australian in 1967, and I was the second uh, theatre critic appointed. The first one was Frances Evers, about whom I'll say something in a minute. Um, I was reasonably well qualified for, for the job. I'd been working on the West Australian since I did my cadetship there in 54, I think it was, and, and I went through until um, we moved to Sydney in, in 64. So there's 10 years with a, a two-year gap uh, at which uh, I went overseas for two years and worked as, as one did in those days you know, in, uh, around Fleet Street as a, in, in a clerical uh, job and went to the theatre every night and I read uh, you know, many of the, the great critics of the time like Kenneth Tynan and Harold Hobson and Penelope Gilead and all. And uh, uh, I had been doing reviews, um, little reviews at the West Australian and I came back and, and made a, a bit more uh, on the West Australian, sorry. And I, um, I built this up and when we uh, moved to Sydney, I had my eye on becoming the uh, theatre reviewer of the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, that was uh, then uh, Roger Cavell, who's also do who's doing both drama and music. And uh, in due course, he decided to uh, give up the the drama. And I've been I've been a stringer for him at that stage. 
However, I had a call from John Douglas Pringle, whom you remember as editor, as the grand editor of the Herald at the time, and he said to me that, um, the, thank you for my, for, for my application, but I was not qualified because uh, my husband was uh, employed by the University of New South Wales under Robert Quentin, who uh, Robert was, had his fingers in all the theatre and drama and, and performance in um, Sydney at the time, and uh, and uh, Bingle believed that that I would be unduly influenced uh, by Robert Quentin through my husband. Um, he didn't know me very well, but fortunately, <laughs> uh, and uh, but fortunately. Um, at that time, we'd also got to know Francis Evers, and uh, he and Philip together wrote uh, three large articles on the Opera House situation in 1960. They're, they're, they're hmm? canonical. Oh, are they? Well, that's good to hear. Uh, and, uh, um, and after that, Francis decided to return to Paris uh, and to, to, to be with his friend Samuel Beckett, as I recall. Uh, they were a lugubrious pair, I must say. Uh, he and and red sports coats, I think, didn't he, Francis Evers? He wore a, an overcoat, a dark, yes, a navy blue overcoat. He was always living inside this navy blue overcoat. And uh, uh, the office of the Australian at that time was in Canberra, of course, and uh, he was uh, briefed to go and review uh, theatre in, in Sydney and Melbourne, but in order to get there, the best they could offer was was a, was a seat on the Matrix plane. So he had to wait for the Matrix plane to arrive in the middle of the night and and uh, and get a lift to interstate and then wait for it to turn up the next night. And in between, he managed to to <laughs> see some theatre. And so he got a bit fed up with that after a while, which is probably why he gave up um, the position, which I grabbed uh, with great enthusiasm. The theatre was a bit behind the rest of the arts um, in '67. There were little um, warehouse places and, and uh, converted churches and things uh, setting themselves up. Most of the theatre was semi-professional. NIDA had started, and uh, and so had uh, their, their byproduct, the Old Tote Theatre Company, that played seasonally in. Uh, the, what is now the Fig Tree Theatre, which holds 100 people. And it was this company that eventually, in 1968, was chosen to become our state theatre company. So uh, there were big changes happening, and uh, and it was in the air. And um, oh, within within a year of my arrival, we, we suddenly had what was called the Australian Council for the Arts, which was rushed through very hastily, uh, and a lot of worthy citizens were quickly appointed by Nugget Coombs to, to various boards and committees uh, because he was trying to get it all through by October 68, I think it was, uh, when there was an election and he'd been given some seeding money and, and he thought once he got it started then uh, it, would, uh, he w it wouldn't be able to be stopped. So we reported on all that. Now, my, um, my job was to write two columns a week, uh, and they were printed on the leader page. Uh, and I shared that space, about 1,200 words, with, with Sylvia and with Laurie Thomas, the art critic, and uh, Kenneth Hintz from Melbourne, who was the music critic. Uh, and who else? But uh, anyway, they, uh, and, and, and they were very often commented upon in the, in the letters, which were also on the leader page. So, so it was a very collegiate thing. And, uh, and it, uh, it reinforced a, a sense that, that what we had to say had some importance. Uh, I very you know, quickly assessed the fact that because we were a national paper, uh, like about 2% of my potential audience uh, were ever likely to see this production of the independent theatre. Um, and so I had to find other ways. And I was a reporter, and the, uh, and the 
columns that I wrote in those early days were, were clearly, clearly reporting. I was looking for news. You know, where have our playwrights gone? Why are there no playwrights? This sort of thing. I was, I was inventing news because there was, wasn't much around. And then suddenly there was. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there were, this was 67 60, and then 68. And, and the Vietnam War was on. People were marching in the streets. Robert Askin was quoted as saying, run over the bastards to a policeman when they were driving down the main street with LBJ. Uh, there, the, there was the, you know, the permissive society that came out of the, of the arrival of the pill. There was, um, uh, the, you know, there were assassinations happening in America re regularly. There was a sense of, of fear and excitement and, and also freedom to say what you like and that you could make a difference somehow. Uh, and I just thought it was marvellous. Uh, and one of the reasons that I felt I was, I was free was that about three months after I uh, uh, had joined the, the paper, I went to Walter Connor and said, uh, I haven't had any comment from editorial about what I'm doing. Is it what I'm doing, doing what you want? And he said, I don't know, I've never read you. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, never mind. <laughs> but, uh, but they were so busy in management to, to getting the paper around Australia, as, as, uh, yeah. as Mark was describing. Uh, what they had to do was, to, was uh, before Offset's printing came in, was, uh, was to make up the pages in hot metal, make a paper mache matrix, and then fly it in these little plays, uh, planes, along with Francis Evers, <laughs> interstate. And there was, a, there was a, a northern edition and a southern edition uh, printed in, in Brisbane and, and Melbourne. And so that's how it started. So one, one advantage that had for, for us uh, was that, and certainly for me, was that I didn't have to do overnight reviews anymore, which I'd learnt to do on the Australian and, you know, King Lear in 20 minutes after rushing back from the theatre <laughs> uh, and filling the hole, as I said, the, the sub-editor left for me. It was a skill which, uh, which we all learned, you know, and, and quickly lost the art of doing when, when we didn't have to do it any, anymore. Um, oh, but of course, well, Walter Comer was gone. Uh, a, a month or two after our conversation, and Adrian Deemer arrived, arrived blessedly because uh, my, the next dramatic event was uh, a libel suit from Peter O'Shaughnessy for my review of his Othello, which has gone into the history books now. Um, it was uh, the problem was I was I was I, I sort of appeared to know too much about the production and hit too many. Uh, um, home runs, I think, which was unfortunate for for, for Peter. I, uh, he was he it was a his Australian actor who was had quite a reputation, and he'd been li living and working in England. And he came back and announced he was going to play Othello, and that was going to be even better than Olivia's, and 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 that sort of thing. So the expectations were high. The performance was at the Conservatorium, the old Conservatorium building. Uh, and uh, and I really thought it was going to be something, and I went along with those expectations. And it was a deeply, deeply old-fashioned production. And and I thought he was upstaging the, the rest of the cast. He was not. He was directing it as well as acting in it. A very difficult thing to do. And he, you know, and he had an ad hoc cast. He didn't know any of the cast and everything. And. Um, in the middle of my, and my, it was an, it was a thoroughly uh, excessive uh, uh, piece of writing on my behalf. But I just got worked up about it, and I said something like, um, "The waste and dishonesty of this production um, has made me very angry indeed." Um, and of course, the, the, it was the word dishonesty that uh, brought about the court case. Um, we won the court case. The judge decided. Well, the jury um, decided that uh, it was opinion, and I was entitled to my opinion in a matter of public interest. Uh, he, um, O'Shaughnessy, appealed, went to appeal, and then it went to the High Court. And 
the judge in the High Court then gave us uh, um, sent it back for retrial on the grounds that uh, there were facts in the article as well as opinion, like you know this play was Othello, this was the cast, and, and it was on <laughs> at this theatre. So so by that time. Um, uh, the Australian had run out of puff, or mirror newspapers, I should say, had uh, thought they'd had enough fun, and uh, so they settled for, I believe, uh, 14,000 uh, pounds. Or, yes, yeah. it was. 14. Were you shocked that, they, that he would take that step and, and actually take it to court over that? Yeah, well, I, I was, but well, it never crossed my mind, of course, you know. But uh, as I was saying, saying to, uh, to 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 Mark earlier, you know, there there were there was no lawyer on the premises in those days, but they yeah. got one pretty quickly That's after right. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it ruined Peter's life, sadly. I mean, he did go on working, but he continued to write to me for, um, from. You know, the early 70s until he died about two years well, ago. Well, he really got obsessed by it. Wouldn't leave he alone. did, and he wrote to everybody he could think of. He wanted, he wanted, a meet, you know, a justification for what he'd done, and uh, and he uh, recently, I believe, um, established a website that's got about 15,000 words of explanation about it all. And I have, I've never looked at the website. Um, but I mean, some of the backstage problems of which I was not aware. One was that at the dress rehearsal, the final dress rehearsal, um, during the uh, strumpet scene with Desdemona, he he hit her um, quite and <laughs> did some damage to her, uh, which is something an actor learns very quickly never to do. Um, and she was so upset, she she went off to a psychiatrist and and uh, and refused to go on stage. And so it was seven o'clock in the evening of the opening night before she finally caved in and said, "I'll do it." You know, and I and I ended my review by saying that Miss Thody looked as uh, she'd had enough for one evening, and so had I. <laughs> 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 said that I thought Robert Inglis, who was playing Iago, was rather, it was a rather soft um, performance and, uh, and that, that he had more energy when, when Othello was not on stage with him. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, at the time I didn't think about upstaging, it didn't occur to me, you see, I was just reporting what I saw. Uh, but uh, but of course that's what everyone leapt on and said. Of course he's you know he's, he's that kind of actor you know who upstages when he whenever he can. Um, he he and Barry Humphreys did a, a production of Waiting for Godot in the in the fifties and they were quite fast friends uh, until until Barry became famous in the way he has and and uh, Barry told me once that, that every time they were in the same city and Barry is performing that. That Peter used to go and give him notes on his performance uh, <laughs> after, after the show, <laughs> and if Barry wouldn't see him, then you know the, the, the notes would be delivered. Um, so there was, you know, something sad about him, and uh, which I regret. But uh, you know, you can't deceive an audience. That was one of my principles as a critic. You can't, you know, say something is better than it is. Uh, you, you have to. Um, Define what what it is, and then try and illuminate that for, for your for your reader. So that that's the Othello case. Uh, there was much more that was happening by then. '68 was uh, it was an extraordinary year um, with protests, oh, and yes. I remember um, the ensemble, the mild little ensemble theatre as it is today, um, did a production of a. Canadian play called Fortune in Men's Eyes was set in a prison centre, and it was about, it was about uh, overt homosexuality and violence and bullying and so forth. Uh, and uh, this was was used by the um, uh, the protesters about our conditions in prison to, to you know to make public protests and and the Minister for Corrective Services John Madison got very 
involved in that. Even Darcy Dugan um, came and joined us on this. So it was in the news, and and I was being a, re a reporter, which which you know critics just don't do anymore. That's one of the sad things I feel about about how the papers have gone. That the the, the uh, nearly all the reviewers are, are contributors now. They're people from other... So they don't have a, a loyalty to, to, to the vision of the, uh, the, the newspaper that they're working for. Well, and they don't, don't yeah. have this, uh, this training to get your grammar straight. And, your, and some and of them are insulted if you call them a journalist. That's right. I'm that's right. And they, there's an assumption that, that their view is, is um, of, of, of importance and that people will read it. And what I was doing, and probably the rest of us were doing, was striving to find a, a way to get people to read your column, because yes, that was yeah. where your power was. Mm. Uh, and uh, anyway, by 1974, uh, I'd, uh, Philip and I would started Currency Press because we got so excited. We, we were away on study leave in, in 69, 70 for six months, and came back with an evangelical need to do something about about in making known all the wonderful changes that were happening that we'd been observing in the theatre and to show people that we had something that was different and uh, that reflected, uh, the, you know, our, our nation, which is, you know, n looking back on that statement you read about the arts and things, that, that's what the Australian was always trying to do in those, those young days, as they were. Mm. Um, and uh, and so so we started Currency Press to publish the texts of our plays to give you know tangible proof of being being a writer to our young playwrights and uh, that's now 40 years ago and uh, and I've done other things. Um, I wrote a lot of notes. I was just talking at the end. I wanted to say that I've forgotten. Um, oh yes. Yes, um, the, the uh, uh, I, by '64 I, I, I had a conflict of interest because I was, you know, I, I couldn't review the plays that I was publishing, uh, and or, or, or promote the the playwrights, and so there, the, there came a point where I thought I have to stop this, and uh, I was also embroiled in the uh, the campaign with David Marr and others to get uh, Jim McNeil out of jail, and. Uh, and we succeeded in that, and got his plays on in Sydney, and and uh, lived to regret the. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, the was an adventure, and so and so um, I left, and I, I I went to Jim Hall and said, look, I, I I can't do this job anymore. It's too big. I can't cover the whole country. I'm I'm losing ground. I'm getting too many. Um, press releases and things. I mean, the, the publicity game in the 70s didn't exist, really. You had to find it out yourself. Mm. But, uh, but the, uh, you know, the, the, but I, I was inundated with stuff and, and the, it was getting more and more you know, difficult to, to get the money to go interstate from the Australian. Mm. Uh, and so I said, look, I'll give you a month's notice. Um, unless we can put, a, you know, appoint a stringer in each state and let me do an overview uh, to become a reporter on the arts. And, um, and he said, no, that he couldn't do it. And so, uh, so that was the end of my time, almost the end of the time, my time with the Australian. However, um, after I left, uh, Maria Perrault was appointed as the first arts editor and uh, he, she organised the arts. <laughs> she was a great organiser, and she was given an arts page. And everyone thought this was, a, you know, a big boost to get, you know, a whole page to yourself to be covered every day um, from all over Australia uh, by a whole, you know, a handful of people. Um, and I occasionally I wrote reviews for her when she asked me. But I soon found that. What she'd done was to divide the page up neatly uh, into uh, blocks of 500 words. So whatever you wrote about, it had to be 500 words. And I said, I can't stand this. I, I won't tell me what's important today in, in my field. Uh, it's, you know, it's very democratic to have 500 words, but 
Sometimes I'd like to write a thousand words, and sometimes I'd, tell, I'd like to say, don't, don't publish anything on this, it's not worth it. Uh, that's, uh, yes, I haven't mentioned that. Um, I, early on, I've, I found this, um, I, that I wanted that sort of freedom. And I went to Douglas Brass and said, I c you're paying me lineage, and I can't, <laughs> I can't stand it. I want to be paid not to write stuff which I think is wasting the newspaper. Um, and, uh, and he agreed with me, and so, so, um, so we agreed that I would be paid $70 for two, two columns a week, and that was my salary for the whole seven years. <laughs> 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 so, um, uh, I used the, my, my last journalism with, with the National Times, where I again found the freedom that I wanted uh, under David Maher as editor. He, said, he gave me a, a page uh, to write a feature every once a fortnight on anything I liked. And we had a great time until he got sacked <laughs> uh, for, the, uh, for two, for allowing two articles. One was, was an obituary of, of Robert Askin, published the day, day after his death, which brought, let it all out. <laughs> and uh, and the, the, the second one was the bottom of the harbour scheme. So that was... Um, the, the last I, I had to do with journalism, and as I said, <laughs> sick, sorry, sick transit Gloria uh, in the world of, of journalism. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. <clears throat> I remember that day David got the news he was sacked. He was in Adelaide at the festival. I remember he came into the bar at the festival and said, said he huh? just got the sack from the National Times. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, dear. Um, well, Ashley's going to talk about today, today's arts coverage from the Australian. Yes, yes. Well, it's interesting actually listening to um, the history of cultural coverage at the at the Oz, um, and uh, there's lots of things that have stayed the same, lots that have changed, obviously. And one, the the, the just the other day, I was editing a, a review out of Melbourne, it was a theatre review, and um, in the back of my mind, I, I cut an adjective. In the back of my mind, um, it was the Catherine Brisbane principle. Uh, he uh, was attributing an intent, I think, to the to the author uh, of the uh, to the director of the the play, and I thought, you know, in the back of my mind, that case still resonates. <laughs> so yeah. it, it got cut. Um, but I think, in terms of reviewing, one of the things that has changed quite dramatically is the presence of technology in, in recent years, social media in particular. Um, we. And this as well goes back to what Catherine was saying in, in the, your overnight reviews that fortunately disappeared for you have returned um, and there's now a, a lot of speed um, and a lot of um, urgency to get that up and there's a very simple reason for that. Um, all of our, the majority of our critics are on Twitter. I encourage them to be doing that all the time. Um, but they're no longer the only, only voice uh, after a production and people may walk out of a, a piece of theatre um, and there'll be a hundred tweets out there talking about what the production was like, and we may be one of them. Um, uh, it's, it's the very reason that the next day, instead of waiting to publish our review sort of 36 hours later, I'll be getting ours, ours up online first thing so we can be a part of that conversation. Um, and I, I think that is important, but just in the, 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 the role of the reviewer has changed somewhat um, because of the, the social media. Um, but at the same time, um, I think uh, the the authority that our reviewers and reviewers generally bring to bring to their job means that they're obviously going to be turned to um, more more than more than most. Uh, which is in the same principle as a restaurant review. You, you go onto Urban Spoon or something, you see 500 reviews, but you're also interested to. I put a lot of weight in what John Lethlean or at Fairfax um, Durack might be saying. Um, I think the the authority that people like David Stratton and Evan Williams, who, have, who know so much more about film than I can imagine, um, or Christopher Allen in, in the arts world, or um, Jordy Williamson in books, um, it's it's, uh, it's it's just I, I think they bring that authority to to what they do. Um, and while I think the the nature of reviewing and reviewers has changed um, it's certainly the case that the producers and the directors um, still are very very interested in what we have to say um, in terms of review 
Um, and I think one example of that, uh, there was a couple of years ago, the musical of Officer and a Gentleman, it was the musical version of the film. Um, and Deborah Jones, um, former arts editor, a very knowledgeable critic, she went along twice uh, just to make sure that she wasn't wrong. Um, and she didn't like it. She, she wrote about the, I remember this phrase, the cringe-making obviousness of the show. Um, and look, these things happen. It was, it was not a positive review. Um, the producer, Douglas Day Stewart, who I think was the writer as well of the film, um, he got in touch with me. He sent a big, long letter, which we put online because that's the great thing that we have as well. And now just being involved in that conversation. Um, and he, he, he took great issue with her and uh, called her an executioner and not a critic. Um, and over you know very very strong language and uh, in doing so he 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 brought thousands more readers to Deborah's review um, that would have been <laughs> the case otherwise and uh, look the show finished six weeks early I, I I don't know whether that had any any role but um, there, there certainly was that I, I I encourage as much as possible to to. Uh, to, to see a lot of that debate happening, um, the conversation happening, and sometimes that's going to be happening online, sometimes social, just on social media, sometimes in the paper. But ideally, you've got that. Um, it's, it's happening in all three. Um, but so while that's one one thing that's changed over the years, that I think there are some constants in in the Oz and the arts coverage. And my perspective is is recent. Obviously, I've only been arts editor for a couple of years, um, but I think. In taking a big picture, I think one of the problems with arts journal journalism generally, um, and I certainly don't mean that the Australian, but generally, is that um, there is that perception of um, of the the presentational journalism that uh, the the coverage can be a bit softer than it could that it should be. Um, and for instance, I have a big problem with a, a um, there's a there's a prominent there's a case in Australia where um, a, a journalist, a good one, writes a, a relatively soft story each week about a, a production, and then that weekend reviews it. Um, and is that that cycle happening far too much? And I guess my point though is that um, the the arts community in Australia these days, and I'm, I'm sure in the past, but especially now, um, is so vibrant and strong and um, and resilient, that it doesn't need any special pleading from us as journalists. Um, in fact, it's the opposite. Um, I think that by engaging with the arts in a robust way um, and a really um, serious way, that, um, that that's the best way that we can um, approach the arts. And I think that's what we do at The Australian. Um, uh, the, just the, in terms of the amount of space that we have, two pages a day, um, devoted to the arts and um, a weekend supplement with, which is second start in the country um, and we Matthew Westwood for instance is my predecessor as arts editor and I think is currently one of the best cultural journalists in the country he has space to write a weekly column about the arts which is not based on any particular production or you know, promoting a, a show or anything like that but is, is just about ideas and trying to, to engage with the ideas and um, uh, often that can be celebrating excellence. That often it can be um, looking at other sort of controversies that, that are going on, such as the the BNRE sponsorship or the Opera Australia's recent problems with um, a gay slur with one of their singers. Um, the fact that he's got he's given a um, a platform each week to just to reflect on these ideas, I, I think, is to great uh, to the great credit of the of the paper. Um, but and there's other things like um, Michaela Boland, our national arts writer. She's been pursuing quite vigorously for a number of years a um, a story involving Supash Kapoor, a dodgy art dealer who used to be based in New York, who um, sold a bunch of art to the NGA among others, and um, and it looks very likely that it was all looted and um, not, not a lot to the great credit of the NGA. Um, it's that's one of those kind of traditional stories of real, um, just uh, hard, hard work behind that one. Just digging and digging and digging on Michaela's part, um, facing a lot of resistance, uh, which often happens with with strong news stories. Um, and, but broadly though, not only has she she managed to break story mm -hmm. after story, but she's been given the the prominence by 
by the paper in general to really prosecute that story. So, you know, big page one, um, page one hits, um, and and I really think that that sort of shows that the commitment on the behalf on on the on this commitment from the editor and the editor in chief um, to to really engaging with these stories seriously. Um, and I mean, there, there's so many other examples. I think. Um, uh, Aboriginal art, for instance, which I've been closely involved in, but um, there, there's Nicholas Rothwell is um, currently based in, well, actually in North Queensland, but until very recently in Darwin. Um, he, I, I don't think there's anyone alive who writes better about Aboriginal art um, in a more subtle, nuanced or authoritative way. Um, and he also approaches the art in a way that he doesn't think that it needs any special pleading either. He engages in a serious, robust um, way that um, that I think does justice to the art form as well as um, anything else. Um, so I, th I think, you know, I, ca I keep saying that sort of serious coverage, and that, that's not to say that, that we, you know, that there's no sort of sense of humour or anything like that, but I, I think that um, the paper really does take the art seriously, and it's one of the, um, the strong branding points of, of the paper, which I'm sure others um, are more qualified to speak about. But um, politics, business, and the arts—I'm sure those are the, the main pillars that that um, drive readers towards the Australian. And I think there's other things, but at, the, at that point, I think we can probably just—I'll I'll come back to you. I'm just interested on that question of special pleading because you, you know, and me too—we started to write at a time when all those our disciplines were beginning to gather a bit of speed and, mm. and um, there was an element of campaigning as well as criticising. And did yeah. either of you have a, ever have a sort of conflict of, of interest there? Well, personally speaking, I don't mean in terms of, you know, what institutions' no, not, relationships... not really. Were. I remember the, um, when the Prospect Theatre Company um, came to town, I met, I met uh, a man... Claudia McKellen McIntosh, she was the general manager, and he and he challenged me. He said, he said, how how can you write all that stuff, you know, when you're when you're, um, you know, starting a publishing company and you're doing all these other things, and and, and uh, you know, how can you be objective? I said, no, <laughs> there's no point in being objective. You know, we're we're all trying to. To, to make our country better and to and to and to uh, you know improve the standard of journalism and all those other things and 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 what we're talking about is what is necessary. Yeah. So so that was my attitude. Yeah. So you never felt inhibited in reviewing a particular production or a particular film. No. I look. If I can answer that. No. I um, again thanks a lot to um, Jim Hall's um, editorship of that section. I didn't. And I did use the column often to, um, fairly often, to um, go on with the campaign for the re-establishment of an Australian film industry, as did Mike Thornhill in the, hmm. the midweek column on film that he had. And um, that went on, and I didn't feel any conflict at all. The hard part came up when, through heroic effort and battling against absolutely everything you say all you like about Hollywood cultural imperialism and so on. An Australian feature film, I remember particularly Tim Burstall's 2000 Weeks, yes, did come up and get case. made and yeah. hit a few screens and I remember walking the floor, tearing my nails, I thinking how on earth can I write about it? It's an Australian film that we're waiting for and it's really bad. <laughs> what can one do? And that situation yeah. arose on a number of occasions, same with... So what did you do in that case? Um, I hope I was reasonably honest. <laughs> and then, you know, um, as Ashley knows, or Catherine knows, listeners, you lose friends, you get, you, you get attacked all over the place, and, but it's rather nice to get... <laughs> it's not too bad to get letters, letters assaulted. Well, I think, on, yes. if, sorry to interrupt you, on that sure. point, that, um, you know, you, you're not... You're not going to be making friends occasionally, and that's true. The um, the arts and well, the you'll arts, be losing arts, friends. Yes, yeah. you know, arts and arts journalists often um, you know, are drinking together and so forth, and it's a it's a, clo uh, a it's a small world. But um, we we certainly have different aims, um, and we don't we don't have the same objectives in in, in any way. Often they we, we do align, but sometimes oh, yeah. we don't. But on on the idea of um, reviewing it, I think um, contemporary art, for instance, whenever Christopher Allen, our, our critic. Um, criticizes something um, in 
in contemporary art, he's you know, invariably accused of just hating contemporary art, hating Australia, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, it really, the special pleading thing I mentioned, it, it does it does the artist no favour to be blindly supporting yeah. um, any of this stuff. And um, in in the in the long run, it it really does matter. And it it, it it's it's a good thing for us to be to be engaging in a in a strong way. Yeah. Can I say something else on that too? Uh, perhaps it's the right moment to say that looking back on that period in my own film reviewing and others and in the campaign across the board involving Philip Adams and everybody else you know who, um, in the developing Australia Council, in the struggle for an Australian industry, <clears throat> there was one way, and in my reviewing, I think I was wrong, I think we were all wrong. We went crazy about directors and people still do. Mm. Who's your favourite director? Who's your favourite Australian director? People will still ask me that now. And I think we gravely underrated the role of the creative and rigorous producer in film production, particularly in feature film production. And um, I'm, I'm sorry about that now. The, um, <clears throat> the issue arises when one confronts, I'm trying to think of a recent example, um, and when I think of the recent film called Healing yeah. with a um, few splendid um, wedge-tailed eagles yes. out in Heedlesville in the Nature Sanctuary and fabulous actors like Don Harney, or Honey I think he's called, mm. and um, Hugo Weaving who's one of the best film actors on the whole planet closely rivaled perhaps by David Gulpilil, whom I got to know as a teenager in this period on the Australian too. Um, okay, it's their film, it's the Eagles film, it's directed by Craig Monaghan. It desperately needed a vigorous producer to rein in the trailing ends of the plot, to turn it into something tight, clear and coherent. And that it can be, the, and should be, the producer's role rather than the directors. But people go, it's Craig Monaghan's film. Sorry, okay, perhaps it is and shouldn't have been. Um, and um, I think this applies in a number of instances. And having said all that um, about directors, I think one of the best directors on the planet is Ivan Sen, who, um, who is of, if I remember correctly, Hungarian, Ger German and Aboriginal descent, recently married to a Chinese lady. <laughs> he, he's in Mystery Road, he made a small masterpiece, and that was Ivan's film. Okay, um, very often perhaps the director is the author, and the, um, the, the top of the pyramid in cinematic gifts and talent, but most of the time we need producers, and we should have said so. We didn't. Yep. Uh, when the play closed, the two robots um, rushed into the foyer and locked themselves inside the ticket kiosk. <laughs> and so it, it was surrounded by these plainclothes policemen who, uh, who waited for them to come out. And eventually the door opened and six men in their underpants came out. <laughs> <laughs> so they, could, they didn't do Anyway, that was the end of that. But we, we had a number of incidents like that and, and court cases in which... Uh, uh, actors got uh, got arrested and charged, and sometimes cautioned, and sometimes they actually had to pay a fine. Yes. Well, you've been a terrific panel. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates, and be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.